Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome. I'm Colin McEnroe. You're listening to a special edition. They're all special in certain ways, but a special, special edition of Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. We decided we needed to put this out because obviously there's been, this is an especially sudden and especially big capital D development. And that, of course, is the disclosure on Sunday night by the New York Times that the John Bolton manuscript exists, that the White House has had it for weeks. The book is called The Room Where It Happens. And it contains, according to the New York Times, a pretty frank and, and, I don't know, unequivocal, unambiguous description of conversations that John Bolton as national security advisor had with Donald Trump in which President Trump basically said that he was going to hold the aid, the assistance, the military assistance to Ukraine until he got what he wanted, which was the announcement of an investigation into Hunter Biden. So this is a problem. We'll be explaining how big a problem it is, parentheses, pretty big problem. Joining me now is Bill Curry, a White House counselor to Bill Clinton, a two-time Democratic nominee for governor of Connecticut and living legend in so many different ways, a holder of the men's broad jump world record, though it was that thin Mexico City. An often overlooked uh, item on my resume. Exactly. Well, I mean, you don't brag about it. You know, people either know it or they don't. So, Let's just talk about this. I mean, before we started rolling on this, I was saying to you, so much of what the Trump defense team said on Saturday was keyed to this idea that there was not a direct witness, that Gordon Sondland was the only person who could plausibly say that he was present for a conversation with President Trump where that quid pro quo was described. And now you've got this. Right. And as is the pattern... We didn't discover today that what they said then was untrue. You hear this phrase a lot. I want to see the receipts now that that we only believe the truths we know through absolute infallible documentation. Mm -hmm. But we knew then that there were these three witnesses at least, Mulvaney, Pompeo, and Bolton, who'd all spoken to him directly about it, who all obviously had not just relevant but absolutely critical evidence. And so when those uh, defense lawyers for the president were saying that, that there were no witnesses, that there was no connection, even if they didn't know about the Bolt manuscript, they knew that that wasn't true and that they were just there on a mission to, to stop any witnesses from being called. There's so much to say about this, but one of the things we should say is as of the moment we're recording this, you know, there are indications, most of them coming from Mitt Romney, that there are more Republican senators now feeling motivated to at minimum hear from John Bolton as a witness than there had been before. If that number had initially consisted of him and Susan Collins and maybe Lamar Alexander, there are more. They're worried now that I think floodgates are going to open. And so I don't know how realistic does that seem to you? I mean, we can't really know, but is this a big enough wedge to get that door open? I'm an agnostic. I have thought from the beginning that Romney, in the end, would vote for witnesses. All these guys know, when I say all these guys, the dozen or so Republicans people are thinking of as even you know remotely possible votes for either uh, witnesses or impeachment. Uh, they know that what Trump did was seriously wrong. And they're all wrestling with their consciences. 
And the question is, how does that counter the extraordinary political pressure? You know, it's like one of those movies where the alien beam comes down and it hits somebody and you see the skeleton and then nothing in two seconds. When you cross Trump in the Republican Party, the beam turns you into a skeleton in a nanosecond. And they're all aware of that. And that's what you're, they're You're facing. thinking like Jeff Flake, Bob it, Corker, those sorts of people. What, yeah. I mean, that's right. They've seen it happen many, many times now. And so they're just looking at this and they're just trying to ask themselves, really, do they have the courage? When all those Republicans took such umbrage that Adam Schiff simply quoted an administration figure that there'd be heads on a pike, Mm -hmm. it's because of the overwhelming and self-evident truth that there will be heads on a pike if they do the right thing. I think each head will get its own pike. It depends on how many pikes there are. It's just not sanitary (laughs) to be sharing sharing pikes. CBS News reported last night – that a Trump confidant said that GOP senators were warned, vote against your president, vote against the president, and your head will be on a pike. When I read that, I was struck by the irony of the idea when we're talking about a president who would make himself a monarch, that whoever that was would use the terminology of a penalty that was imposed by a monarch. I should just add to that, and this is something that's been brought up in the show before by Sarah Kenzior. There's also a long and not to be completely dismissed history of people who testify uh, against Donald Trump, judges who make rulings that don't favor Donald Trump, getting death threats, their families get death threats. I mean, I, I don't know how big a contingent of his followers are involved in that, but that is a characteristic of this era. If you are on the wrong side of things, not only will you suffer political consequences from just the wrath of President Trump, but his followers take that as an invitation also to try to intimidate you. No question at all. And when uh, Marie Ivanovich was asked the question, there have been three or four times when people have asked, how do you feel about this? And they say, basically, I'm frightened. It is such a deplorable level to which we've reduced civic discourse in America that these career civil servants feel frightened for their lives, for the testimony they give, and and I think legitimately so. We should talk a little bit about the specific stature or status of John Bolton. Before we do that, well, let's hear the aforementioned Mitt Romney talking about how things seem to him right now. It's increasingly apparent that it would be important to hear from John Bolton. Uh, I, I, of course, will make a final decision on witnesses after we've heard from not only the prosecution, but also the defense. But I think at this stage, it's pretty fair to say that uh, John Bolton has a uh, relevant uh, testimony. I think it's uh, increasingly likely uh, that other Republicans will uh, will join those of us who think we should hear from John Bolton. I just want to say one thing on behalf of Mitt Romney. He uh, was speaking at some kind of event over the weekend, and he made a joke that actually made me laugh. I realized it was written for him, but he said, people worry too much about artificial intelligence and about robots taking over our jobs. If that were true, I'd be president now. And that's pretty good, actually. That shows a certain level of you know, self-awareness. So one thing John Bolton is not is James Comey, right? Trump found it pretty easy to question the motives of Comey because Comey seemed a little bit, well, I mean, for all of us, Comey is kind of a hard person to pin down. He did as much damage, if not more, to Hillary Clinton as he did to Donald Trump. But Bolton is, he's a warrior. hes a, He's been an ideological warrior pretty far to the right of a lot of Trump's positions, right? I mean, in, he's harder in the years to in which I, In the years in which I was doing foreign policy work in Washington, I was struck on a couple of occasions by people who knew Bolton, who didn't agree with him on anything, and I agree with him on hardly anything, would speak up for him because they were impressed with his integrity and uh, impressed with his mind and impressed 
with the civility, which he didn't demonstrate so often in his public testimony, which could be searing and mm. often unfair. But like a lot of people, they put the mic down, they walk out of the hall, and there is at least an assumption of friendship. And so people felt well about him for that. These uh, points that are being made, uh, Bob Barr, I couldn't believe they brought Bob Barr back on CNN this morning saying that Bolton can't be trusted because he leaked his own book in order to move sales. This is the Bob Barr who was, I don't know why, they I think felt he, might have been a, he, he might have been a house manager during the uh, Clinton. Yes, yeah. yes. The, the, the working rule with Trump and now so many people in his circle is that whatever they say, the truth is exactly 180 degrees opposite. <laughs> if you just turn and take a full turn around, you'll, you'll be able to discover it. And leaking a book six months in advance of its publication is not something you do to increase sales. It's something your publisher will shoot you for. And Bolton's overall reputation within the party, I think, makes him, for most Republican senators, unassailable on grounds of character. The New York Times reported kind of the opposite also, saying that they had been told by associates of Bolton that he was concerned that exactly what Barr is kind of describing the opposite of would happen, that his book would come out with him not having told his story for the governmental record and people would would impugn his character, rightly impugn his character for doing that. Why did you save it for the book? In his position, I would like to think that I would have simply held a press conference and gotten all of it out there and created an inescapable momentum to sworn testimony. Mm -hmm. But when you take into account the pressures he feels, the career dynamics, uh, he certainly has made it clear, not only that he was willing to testify, but that he had something to say and that it really bore upon the proceedings. Again, this is an amazing thing. Imagine a murder trial in which we know there are three eyewitnesses (laughs) and none of them can be called. It's just hard to imagine how you could have three people who all had direct conversations with Trump about this on this very topic and not bring them in and have them, you know, swear under penalty of perjury to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. Right. We should say also that there may even be four eyewitnesses or or more. And and that one of the things that apparently is in the Bolton manuscript, which we should say, once again, the White House has had this for weeks now. They know what's in the Bolton manuscript. And didn't tell their own lawyers, never mind the the house managers. They they, (laughs) they appear to have sent out Cipollone and Seculo and those people out there on a fool's errand, uh, not knowing what they knew. Yeah, he also implicates to a certain degree William Barr. Not Bob Barr, the guy that Bill was just talking about, but William Barr, that Bolton says that he told Barr about Giuliani's shadow Ukraine policy after that July 25th phone call. That would, yeah. Can can I just make a follow-up with one point on that? And that is that the other thing that Bolton makes clear in that manuscript, a little bit we've seen of it, is, again, that the truth is the exact opposite of what Trump says. Trump and his people are saying that Trump was there to promote ethical government and to fight corruption. Everything we already know tells us that Trump doesn't care at all about corruption. He's never mentioned it in any other context as president of the United States. Bolton says that it was the exact opposite. His suspicion was that Yanovich was offed in her position because they wanted to corrupt the country further. Of course, Rudy's whole trip, getting them to conduct a political prosecution, it's the very essence of what we regard as fascist or dictatorial government. It's the very thing we're trying to uh, eliminate across the world to keep these right-wing or left-wing dictators from from hounding their opponents with political prosecutions. Bolton says not only are we doing that, but we were also trying to make money for Rudy and his pals over there. That that was the real mission. Wow. (laughs) And and you're not going to hear from him? The other scenario that this sets up is – 
not a camel's nose under the tent, I guess, but a walrus's mustache under the tent. Imagine you know, a scenario where Bolton does testify before the Senate trial, and he puts Pompeo in the jackpot, he puts Mulvaney in the jackpot, he puts William Barr in the jackpot, and who knows who else. Then there's going to be pressure to call these men in no a question. way that's going to be different from the pressure that exists now. Yeah, it's right there in those quotes in the Times this morning on uh, from the book. He says they knew. And again, people have to just stop and just let this sink in for a minute. The people the Democrats are trying to call are arguably the three top appointees of Trump himself. His chief of staff, his secretary of state, his national security advisor, and a fourth would be the attorney general apparently. Mm -hmm. And they're all eyewitnesses to this, which means it wasn't just Rudy. The entire government was corrupted. By the way, one of the things that, you know, that Trump in asserting executive privilege – uh, he's always asserting rights he doesn't have. He talks about the Article Two of the Constitution giving him you know, these broad powers that don't exist. The Constitution's not the Bible in a number of ways, one of which is that it's very short. And Article Two takes about a minute to read. You can look it up <laughs> while, you know, right now while you're listening. And it's not, there's nothing like it in there. We should say executive privilege is not mentioned or not articulated by name anywhere in the Constitution. It's an idea that is derived by courts from, and, from, and, the, from the Constitution. And, and I would just say this. It's an idea derived by the privileged and the powerful. Hmm. Just like those two staff memos that a president can't be indicted, that's nowhere in the law. And by the way, that's no longer the law. We finally had a judge rule on that for the first time in New York over these very issues. And he said it was the, the idea that a president can't be indicted is an affront to the Constitution. And because that's, that's the highest authority on record now, that is, in a very real sense, uh, the law. He has no right to do anything in furtherance of a crime. He has no rights whatsoever as president to act in a corrupt manner. <laughs> and so, sure, you can hire and fire. But if you're doing it in order to do a shakedown of a foreign government at war with a global adversary, you have no right at all. And it is itself beyond doubt an impeachable offense. The Nixon verdict, this is really the, the biggest court test of executive privilege, basically said that, that if you are actively presidenting, being president, doing things that presidents do, that you can claim executive privilege for some of that stuff. But if you are departing from That's what presidents right. do, then you don't get to do if it If it's anymore. a congressional committee trying to differ with you over a policy, you have a really strong argument as a president to keep much of what happened confidential. And no one's questioning that. In the same sense that the right to subpoena documents has con been considered in a couple of court cases to be at its strongest for the Congress in matters of impeachment, the right to exclude evidence is at its weakest. <laughs> Executive privilege has almost no bearing, almost no bearing when the question is the commission of a crime. There are things that I think the House did that were correct and understandable but not advisable. And one of them was deciding that they didn't have the time to assert their right in court. One thing you can say about impeachments is that we've never had one without a court case. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, it's not just a political question or a legislative question. It's always a hybrid that includes judicial questions. We should also say, I mean, this isn't at the federal level, this is the state level, but we watched a similar process unfold in the case of John Rowland, where I remember he was, him. yeah, exactly. Hmm. He was called by the House Select Committee on Impeachment. And uh, he to, said, yeah, to, I to, can't make it. Yeah. Yeah. He and his wife were both subpoenaed. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing last Wednesday? <laughs> yeah. They fought, they fought the subpoena and it was fast-tracked. I can't remember. It was the, the state Supreme Court decided that. 
in I think a matter of a couple of days, uh, it, w- it was fast tracked, and that was the end of everything. So it, it can be done really fast. And while we're on the subject of courts, though, so today in the New York Times, Neil Katyal, one of the foremost constitutional scholars yep. we have out there, and a guy who I believe wrote the current independent counsel law, wrote a piece saying that ultimately power resides according to the impeachment rules established in 1868. Power resides with Chief Justice John Roberts to decide on the validity of a, a subpoena. He doesn't need a 51-vote majority of the Senate in order to honor a subpoena. What did you make of that? The op-ed piece was persuasive. I've been looking into this a lot, and I had not come across that myself. So when I read that early this morning, it was really, for all of us, there's a kind of groundhog day to hearing all these arguments over Mm -hmm. and over again for the last few months. And I thought, wow, something fresh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have the same uh, question, which is, wow, they put the Supreme Court justice in. It's time to ask why they did that. (laughs) Was he supposed to go in there and be just sort of a potted plant? My first brush reaction is that it makes enormous sense. Even before I read that article and I thought that that the Democrats should make the point. And I hope that at this point, armed with that thinking, that they will. Well, it would be an interesting argument to make because let's say Roberts granted their point to say, yes, that's true. Under the rules, I have the power. Because there's a counter argument that I think that has to do with Section 7 of those rules. But let's say that Roberts said, no, no, that is correct. I have the power to okay a subpoena and I'm okaying them right now. There would be no appeal. You can't appeal beyond. Yeah, there's, no, there's no way to go. My guess is that there's no bold black letter answer for anyone, no matter how long you researched it. And I do know this. If, if Roberts made a ruling, I don't think it would matter whether it was 51 or 67. The point at which some Republican senators would not be wanting to overrule the Republican chief justice of the United States Supreme Court on something as simple and fundamental as calling witnesses and adducing evidence to a trial I think at that point, this dike starts to give. Although every time we bet on shame and propriety kicking in, we're wrong. But you know, I know <laughs> that's true. Later, sooner or later, the, that number is coming the, up on the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's right. Somebody's got somebody's to win big on this. Uh, you know, I was talking before about the assertions that Trump makes. You know, we all know that it's bad to it, – and it's wrong to pretend to know things that you don't know. It's mm-hmm. one way to get in trouble. A country gets in trouble even more often by pretending not to know things it does know. And if we don't, in fact, admit what we know and allow these institutions to do the job that they were envisioned to do, we're giving up our democracy. We've been talking to Bill Curry. He's a former counselor to Bill Clinton uh, in the White House and a two-time nominee for governor, a holder of the world record for the broad jump. Although that was kind of the thin atmosphere in Mexico City, I think, helped you quite a bit on that one. Mm. Uh, wine. We're going to take a little break, kind of a musical break here. I'm going to come back and just say a few words about the encounter that NPR anchor Mary Louise Kelly had with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. But before we do that, I just want to make the point that musically, yes, that uh, John Bolton took a Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, lyric from Hamilton for the title of his book. Here's that song. Meanwhile, Madison is grappling with the fact that not every issue can be settled by committee. Meanwhile, Congress is fighting over where to put the capital. It isn't pretty. Then Jefferson approaches with the dinner and invite, and Madison responds with Virginian insight. Maybe we can solve one problem with another and win the victory for the Southerners. In other words, oh, oh. a quid pro quo. I suppose. Wouldn't you like to work a little closer to home? Actually, I would. Well, I propose the Potomac. And you'll provide him his vote. Well, we'll see how it goes. Let's go. No. What else was in the room where we
But I really think he would have been better served had he chosen this song. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe again. This is this special episode of Pardon Me. I just wanted to say a few words here at the end. I'm speaking kind of extemporaneously, but it's something that I've been thinking a lot about since Friday night. Friday night is when we found out that Mary Louise Kelly had done an interview with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Mary Louise Kelly, obviously one of the hosts of All Things Considered, and a very distinguished national security correspondent for public radio in the past, somebody who really knows the ropes. She'd secured this interview with the Secretary of State. She conducted it. She asked him, after talking to him about Iran, some pretty pressing questions about Ukraine and about his role in the discharging of Ukraine Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. Did he ever speak up for her? That kind of thing. Questions that clearly made him uncomfortable. And then on Friday evening on All Things Considered, she revealed that after that, Pompeo had invited her into or asked her, summoned her, I guess, into another room, a kind of private living room, and asked her not to bring her recorder with her, and then basically berated her and claimed that they had a deal where he wasn't going to be asked questions about Ukraine, defied her to find Ukraine on an unlabeled map, uh, said that people in America didn't care about Ukraine. He used rather salty language to express this and other points. And so there's been a lot of fallout from that. And the CEO of Public Radio has said we will not be intimidated. Meanwhile, uh, Mary Louise Kelly was able to produce emails between her and a Pompeo staffer prior to the interview in which she said, A, that she would ask some questions about Ukraine and B, that she never takes anything off the table heading into an interview like this. And I think that's such an important thing. I mean, as this unfolded, I mean, I can't claim the kind of stature that she has, but as somebody who's been doing journalism since 1976, some things were really readily apparent to me. And one of them is, you know, one of the things that we do is we ask the Secretary of State or somebody questions because you can't, right? It's unlikely that you can get to the people that we can get to. So we work for you, but they work for you too. And that's something you lose track of. Mike Pompeo should not be in a position to say that he will or won't answer questions prior to an interview. He should not be in a position to dictate the agenda of an interview like that. If he thinks he is, he's wrong. And if he thinks that somebody like Mary Louise Kelly is going to let him get away with that, he's wrong. The These people are public servants. They forget that. They become so powerful that they don't realize anymore that they work for the average person. And we in the press, as I say, we're sort of proxies for the average person. And so we're going to ask them questions. We will ask them questions that they don't want to be asked. And they have lots of options in that situation. I mean, Pompeo could have just clammed up. He could have just said, I'm not talking about Ukraine today. He didn't. He actually answered some of those questions and then afterwards flew into a rage at the person who had asked them. But it's, it's all inappropriate. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it all represents a real failure on the part of people in power, a frequent failure on the part of people in power to understand that, yes, they are powerful, but their power comes from us. It comes from the regular people, the voters, the people who constitute the American electorate, the citizenry. That's where the power resides. It's where it should reside. And everything that he said in all the ways he conducted himself in this very sorry performance betray an ignorance or a rejection of that idea. There is no imperial presidency. There's no imperial cabinet either. These people should have to answer questions, reasonable questions from the press who are there to represent your interests. All right. That's the end of my rant. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, when time permits and when the occasion dictates. Ah!